Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Dennis, one of the pastors here at Garden City, and we're continuing in our study of the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 16, and as we prepare for this conversation, I want to maybe just start by asking, have any of you ever had a moment or maybe a season in your life when you really believed, like you felt you knew you were supposed to do something. You were supposed to start moving in a certain direction. You knew you were supposed to make a particular decision or you were supposed to put yourself out there in a way that felt new and maybe even uncomfortable. And you knew you were supposed to do it. You felt in your core that you were supposed to do it. And then no matter what you did, no matter what you tried, no matter how hard you worked, it just didn't happen. It just didn't work. And it just didn't come together. Have you ever felt like you knew what you needed to do and so you set out to do it and at every turn it felt like something was standing in your way, almost resisting you, keeping you from accomplishing the thing you knew and believed you were supposed to do? In May of 2020, I sat down in my lead pastor's office at Northway. At the time, I was leading a campus at Northway, pastoring its church in Oakland. And in that meeting, I told my lead pastor, who had been a close friend, that Julie and I had this growing sense that we were supposed to step out of my role pastoring Northway Oakland. Specifically, that I needed to leave the church completely and say yes to this invitation that Julie and I were beginning to sense from Jesus to start this new thing in our neighborhood. I spent the latter part of that year meeting with community leaders here in the north side, asking about the needs that existed in the neighborhood. And even though I'd lived in the neighborhood for 15 years at that point, I had never actually done day-to-day -day ministry here. I'd lived here, but never rooted my work here. And as I sat with leaders and listened to them tell their own stories and talk about the work that they were doing in the neighborhood, and as I asked them questions about what they believed the neighborhood most needed, two things kept coming up. The two most pressing needs were affordable housing and food. And I remember Brenda Gregg, who leads a faith community over in Brighton Heights, telling me, Dennis, year to year, it's always the same two things. Just sometimes it's food is number one one year, and then the next year it's housing. But it's always those two things. And so, in response to that, I started building a plan to start a community development organization that would meet one of those needs. And at the same time, I also started taking steps to create the groundwork for a church community. 
Because at the time, what I believed Julie and I were supposed to do was create an affordable housing community development organization. And then, after doing that for two or three years, to start a church. I believed we were supposed to start our work in the neighborhood by tangibly going after meeting and addressing one of these social needs and doing that with a core group of people who would join into the work who would function almost like a house church, if you will, and that I would pastor this house church over time. And then eventually, as we did this work in the neighborhood, it would grow into an actual eventual church. That was the original plan for Garden City a community development organization that two to three years after it started its work would consider planting a church. Now, the whole time I was meeting with these community leaders, doing the work to incorporate a nonprofit community development organization and to incorporate a church just so we had it, and to begin raising support to undertake all of this work, Julie and I were gathering on Sunday nights online in the midst of the pandemic for a Bible study. And that Christmas Eve in 2020, we hosted an online worship gathering and 41 people participated. Many of you who are here today were a part of that very first Christmas Eve online gathering. And then in January and February of 2021, that group of people grew to the point that some Sunday nights, we'd have over 60 people gathered with us online for our Bible studies. Now, the whole time, all this is happening. We're gathering each week. There's 60 plus people online. I'm continuing to push forward with the vision to start a community development organization. Julia, though, has started to ask a different question. She has started to ask if my plan is backwards. If maybe we should start with a church and then two to three years later, try to bring a community development organization around it. And I said, no, no, that is not what we're supposed to do. We are going to keep moving forward with this vision. Even though the more that I would lean into this community development work, trusted and close friends told me, you've lived in the neighborhood a long time. You and your wife and your family are known, but you've never actually built relationships with these organizations you're going to need to do work with. I don't know that you've actually built the trust that you need to do the work that you think you want to do. And so you should just push pause on that. And I remember Wayne Younger telling me that a good rule of life for me was to almost always listen to Julia. I still remember the night that Julia and I had what I might in hindsight refer to as a passionate conversation in our kitchen where she told me in, I think, the ways that only a person who is truly committed to you and loves you can do, that she thought I was really missing it and that we already had a church 
and that I was being a little foolhardy and that I should just see what's in front of me and respond to it. And I remember I went back in my journal to find this. She said, and I quote, if you keep acting like you're not already pastoring a church, I think you're going to miss what Jesus is trying to do. And I wish I could tell you that my immediate response to that was to recognize the voice of Jesus in and through Julia. I wish I could tell you that in her words, I just heard and felt and knew the Spirit's conviction and immediately altered course. I did not. It took me a few days, a few weeks, but I eventually realized she was right that Jesus was inviting us into something new. It just wasn't a community development organization, at least not at that time. The thing Jesus was inviting us to start first was a church. And so in early 2021, after months of people who loved me telling me that I was missing it, we adjusted course. I set aside my plans to start a community development organization and started work to build a church. And the first thing I did in that season, which for me felt like maybe stories from the Old Testament where you would set out a fleece and you would kind of say like, all right, Jesus, if this is really your plan, I'm gonna need you to do one thing to prove it to me. And it was in that season that I knew I didn't want to start a church on my own. I didn't want to plant a church in this community by myself. I knew that I wanted and needed a partner in ministry. That if this was going to be what I think Jesus wanted it to be, it needed to be led by two people from the beginning. It needed to be people who looked like and represented the neighborhood. It needed to be a multiracial leadership team. And I think there was a part of me that was just walking through all that thinking, I don't know that God's going to bring that person alongside of me. I don't know that I'm going to meet them. And that'll be the thing two months from now where I go back to Julia and say, look, well, I tried, but we should just keep going back to the original plan. But in that season, I set up a few meetings with people in our neighborhood to just share the vision. And it was almost frustrating Every conversation I had, people would say, do you know Shaq Hager? And I'm like, heard of him. Don't know him, heard of him. Second lunch, I remember sitting with Matt Mason, a mutual friend of ours, and he was like, do you know Shaq Hager? And I was like, please don't do that. And you're like the fourth person now in a week to mention his name to me. And then I was hanging out with a friend of mine, Mitch Young, who is a part of Garden City with his family. And I was asking, I was telling Mitch, and I was like, you know, and this name keeps coming up, Shaq Hager, Shaq Hager. And he was like, oh, he lives across the street from me. You want to come over tonight and meet him? And I was like, not really. <laughs> but I did. And we sat in Mitch's backyard, and Shaq and I met and talked for the very first time and shared the vision with him. And over the course of the next two to three months, after lots of long conversations online with Shaq and Ruth, 
they both felt the Lord inviting them into this work. And together, as a team, we were off and running planting a church. And that's the conversation I want to have this morning. What do we do when we know we're supposed to do something? When we know we're desiring a particular thing or we know there's a certain direction we need to start moving, a direction that is good and right, a direction that's even godly, and yet no matter what we do, no matter what we try, at every turn, it feels like something is standing in our way, almost preventing us from doing what we believed we were supposed to do. Paul had a moment like that in Acts 16, when he believed that he was supposed to go in a certain direction, and no matter how hard he tried, no matter how many different ways he went, at every step the spirit of Jesus prevented him from doing the very thing Paul believed he was supposed to do, the very thing that many of us would look at and say is the best thing that he could do, travel around and preach the gospel and plant churches. And I think what Paul did, the way that Paul responded, is the way that each and every one of us should also respond in similar situations. Story starts in Acts 16, verse 6. Paul and his companions, this is Timothy, Silas, and Paul, traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Like, just for a moment, listen to that sentence. Read that sentence. Does that sentence make sense to you? Having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word. Why in the world would the Holy Spirit do that? When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we, Luke is now a part of the team. Luke is our narrator, he's our writer. Luke is now a part of the team. We got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Something that I've learned in my years of reading the Bible, and something that's at the heart of an inductive study of the Bible, when a word or phrase repeats itself multiple times in a passage, we should pay attention to it. In verse 16, Luke writes that Paul, Silas, and Timothy traveled throughout Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word. Then in verse 7, Luke writes that when they tried to enter Bithynia, the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Twice, Luke makes it clear that the Spirit of Jesus is preventing Paul, Silas, and Timothy from proclaiming the gospel in particular places. Why? Why in the world would the Spirit of Jesus actively prevent Paul, arguably the greatest evangelist in this moment of the church's history, from doing the thing that he seems to do best? It's almost as though the Spirit is thwarting Paul's ability to fulfill Jesus' kingdom mission, to go and 
create, to make disciples of all people, to plant churches and to baptize people. But why? I think the most honest answer is to say it's hard to know for sure. But it seems likely, based on the geographic direction Paul and his team were moving, that they were trying to get to Ephesus, one of the largest, wealthiest, and most influential cities in the entire Roman Empire. It was one of the most important commercial centers in all of Rome, and it was the seat of Rome's government and administrative functions in Asia. There's also, based on the geographic trajectory that Paul and his team were headed on, the possibility that Paul and his team were trying to get to Rome itself, that they were trying to get to the very center of the empire, that they were trying to go right into the heart of Rome. And what's interesting is that Paul will eventually get to both of these places. Paul will eventually get to both Ephesus and Rome. It seems the Spirit of Jesus did want Paul to proclaim the gospel in those places, just not now. Not at this moment in his life. So the fact that the Spirit was preventing Paul wasn't the Spirit saying no to what Paul believed he should do. It seems it was the Spirit saying, not yet. This isn't the time. The passage ends in verses 9 and 10 with Paul having a vision. In the vision, Paul sees a person from Macedonia and hears them, hears this person inviting Paul and the team to travel there. And then in Luke's words, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Paul has this vision. He shares it with Silas, Timothy, and now Luke. And together they all agree that God was calling them to go to Macedonia and proclaim the gospel there to quite literally head in the opposite direction of where they had seemed to want to go. It seems worth mentioning, too, that once they discerned God was calling them to Macedonia, they didn't delay. They went immediately. They didn't elevate their plans or desires over Jesus's. They discerned the Spirit's invitation, and they went right away in the opposite direction of the very places they seemed to want to go. And as they went to Macedonia, they proclaimed the gospel. Because remember, from two weeks ago, their freedom is in Jesus. They don't believe they're free to do what they want, whatever they want. They believe that their freedom in Jesus requires them to limit themselves and to deny themselves and to say, I will exercise my freedom to do the things that I am being led to do. Their understanding of their freedom leads them 
to wholeheartedly serve Jesus and his gospel. But what does all of this mean for us? How do we read through this story, work through it, make sense of it, and then apply it to our lives in some meaningful way? What might it have to say to those of us who believe we're supposed to do something, who have desired something, who believed we were supposed to go in a particular direction, who may even feel all of these things right now, and who might be experiencing frustration as we try to live into that. There's an author named Terry Walling who says this, detection precedes direction. Detection precedes direction. We can only really know which direction we're supposed to go, what we're supposed to do, and how we're supposed to do it once we've heard and discerned Jesus' voice. Peter knew he was supposed to go to Cornelius' house and proclaim the gospel to a Gentile, which was absolutely not the thing to do at that time because the spirit of Jesus led him to do it. Philip knew he was supposed to share the gospel with an Ethiopian eunuch, a gender non-conforming person, because the spirit of Jesus led him to do it. Paul and Barnabas knew they were supposed to go on their first missionary journey, leaving Antioch, where they were leaders in the church because the spirit of Jesus led them to do it. All throughout Acts, we see the early church seeking after the Spirit of Jesus in prayer, and then doing what the Spirit leads them to do. It's worth saying, Peter, Philip, Paul, and the other leaders of the early church, they weren't sitting around doing nothing while they were praying and asking Jesus what they should do. They didn't use not hearing specific guidance for a period of time as a reason or excuse to do nothing. Instead, as they sought the Spirit in prayer, they kept living out the gospel. They kept showing up to work. They kept showing up to their families. They kept showing up in their neighborhoods and to their friends. And they lived the gospel in all of those places as they sought the Spirit of Jesus for their next steps and direction. We should be seeking the Spirit's leading and guiding too in every area and facet of our lives. And as we seek the Spirit, and as we wait to hear, we should be living the gospel with everyone we do life with everywhere we go. This story in Acts 16, where Paul, Silas, and Timothy are wandering around seeking after the Spirit's leading and being prevented from going places. They walked somewhere between 200 and 300 miles. That's two to three weeks of wandering around, trying to make sense of what they were supposed to do and where they were supposed to go. Two to three weeks, 200 to 300 miles of walking. Like at what point would you or I have just been like, Clearly, we do not know what we're doing. Let's just sit down for a little while. But they kept going in the midst of their seeking. They lived the gospel as well as they could as they sought the Spirit. 
And once they heard the Spirit's voice, they went where the Spirit led them. It's reasonable for us to think that based on the habits that we've seen established in Jesus' ministry, what he's taught to all of his disciples, and how we've seen the early church live through these first 15 verses of the book of Acts, that the entire time Paul and his team were wandering around, they were praying. That as part of every day, they were praying. Luke's established that Paul and other leaders of the early church spend considerable amounts of time in prayer. In fact, Luke has established for us that prayer is a spiritual practice that the early church engaged regularly. So my guess then, based on all of the context we have, is that this vision to go to Macedonia comes after days and weeks of regular concerted prayer. That at some point, maybe after mile 200, Paul's like, we should pray even more, guys. We clearly do not know where we're supposed to be going. Church detection precedes direction. We should be people who regularly and routinely seek after Jesus in prayer so we can know what we're supposed to do, where we're supposed to go, and even when we're supposed to do it. And yet, and I offer this with as much gentleness and compassion and understanding as a person who himself has five children and is married and has friends. I don't think the majority of us have a regular routine for focused, unhurried prayer. And I think this is because for most of us, as far as we can tell, our lives are working out just fine. We're educated, we've got our intellect, we've got our parents, we've got our siblings, we've got our friends, we've got our podcasts. And when we add all of that up, it feels like we already have access to a whole lot of wisdom that's advised and guided us at least relatively well over the past. So if we were to take stock of our lives today and say we're doing mostly okay on our own, why then would we need to pray? Why then should we create rhythms where we can have focused and unhurried times of prayer? Especially when our time is already at a premium. I really cannot remember the last time I met somebody who said the one thing I have in excess of is time. Richard Foster, who is becoming a regular character in my sermons, if you've noticed, in his book, Celebration of Discipline, which I had to order another copy of because I just, it's so underlined, guys, that I don't, I don't know, just an aside real quick, in college, I couldn't buy used books, drove my parents mad that they had to like, they chose to pay the money to get me new textbooks every semester. Moments where it was like, I can't just buy an old one. Like, if it's got a highlight in it, I'm not gonna read the rest of it. I'm just gonna pay attention to the highlights. 
And then I get to the test and I'm like, maybe that person had a different professor than I did because their highlights were not helpful. Thank you. So, I'm on to my third copy of this book now. But Foster writes, prayer catapults us onto the frontier of the spiritual life. Of all the spiritual disciplines, prayer is the most central because it ushers us into perpetual communion with the Father. All who have walked with God have viewed prayer as the main business of their lives. For those explorers on the frontiers of faith, prayer is no little habit tacked on to the periphery of their lives. It was their lives. It was the most serious work of their most productive years. For those explorers on the frontiers of faith, that's supposed to be us. We are to be explorers on the frontiers of faith. We are to be people who become like Jesus so we can do more of what Jesus did. And if we're going to do what Jesus did, we need to do what Jesus did. John Mark in his gospel writes this about Jesus. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. In the very next verse of John Mark's gospel, Jesus looks at his disciples and shares with them that they need to visit the surrounding villages so he can proclaim the gospel in those places. The way Mark tells the story in his gospels, it seems that Jesus woke up that morning needing to seek after God to know where he should go and what he should do. Jesus, it seems like Paul, needed to pray because even for Jesus, detection preceded direction. So this week, church, an invitation. Would you consider looking at your calendars this week and blocking three 15-minute periods of time that you can pray to just talk with Jesus? And maybe even more importantly, to be focused and unhurried so that you can hear him. For me, this looks like Sunday night sitting in my kitchen at home with my planner and literally charting out my week. Because something I know about myself is that if I say, I'll just find time to go to the gym, then I'll go to the gym. I'll just find time to do this thing. I typically don't find time. What would it look like if this week, as a community, we blocked three 15-minute periods of time to pray? What do we do when we believe there's something we're supposed to do? When we are desiring a particular thing, when we believe there's a direction we need to go, when we just have questions and doubts? What do we do if we're in a season like that right now? 
because these seasons of detection and redirection, they're not simple. What do we do with the pain and the confusion and the disappointment and disillusionment we might be feeling because we think we're supposed to do a thing and it's just not coming together? We can receive the grace that God has been with us all along. We can seek to trust God, that he does have a direction for us, even if it's different than we'd imagined. And we can trust that he's going with us into the new and unknown future. We can pray. We can pray continually and always because I believe detection precedes direction. It did for the early church. It did for Jesus. Because they, like us, are to be explorers on the frontiers of faith in our families and in our neighborhoods. So this week, may we become people who pray a little bit more. Like Jesus, so we can do more of what Jesus did. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we want to spend time with you. You are the center of our lives. You are to be the center of our lives. Everything that we are is to be founded in you and rooted in you. Paul will say that it is in you and through you and by you that we find our life. And so would you invite us? Would you teach us? Would we even just commit when we don't feel like it to just be with you, to talk with you, to listen to you, to pray? We love you, Jesus. We pray in your son's name. Amen.